0: Welcome to the Sunday Morning Podcast from Kingdom Faith Church in Horsham. Well, it's just lovely to be back. Lovely to see you all. have been back a few times quietly in between, but do you know what? It's over a quarter of a century ago that we left. Turn to the person next to you and say, they are old. <laughs> and that means you're old. <laughs> Uh, Thanks, Clive, for those kind words. Yeah, I've been great friends with Clive and Jane ever since he had a ponytail. (laughs) Do you remember that? I don't even think Toby existed back then. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I'm going to share a little bit about my story, but I don't want to spend a long time saying too much. We've brought some books for you to read which explain our testimony and tell a story about what what we've been through. But we want to spend most of the time talking about God's majestic mercy. So Sam's going to read a story for us. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verse 1, or find it on your phone, Mark chapter 5, verse 1. It's the miracle with the uh, man possessed by a legion of demons. Mark chapter 5, verse 1, right through twenty. Sam, do you want to do the reading for us? So
1: here's a reading. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes when jesus got out of the boat a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore not even with a chain for he had been chained hand and foot but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet no one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones when he saw jesus from a distance He ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, "'son of the most high God? "'Swear to God that you won't torture me.' "'For Jesus has said to him, "'Come out of this man, you evil spirit.' "'Then Jesus asked him, what is your name?' "'My name is Legion,' he replied, "'for we are many.' "'And he begged Jesus again and again "'not to send them out to the area. "'A large herd of pigs was feeding "'on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed.
0: Thanks, darling. Every time we share that story elsewhere, Sam's just been tears and tears, so... On the way down, I was saying, please don't cry, please don't cry. So she did well to have a little waver in her voice. Well, as Clive said, um, we've been here since the conception of Kingdom Faith Church um, all those years ago, and it's been through many transitions and changes since then. We actually left in 1998 when we were about 26, and amazingly, we're still only 34 now. So I don't know how that's happened. That's another miracle I'll preach about one day. But um, we did lots of things, youth pastor and worker, other... CV churches and we did community work and working with the council and we were planting churches and then one morning as I got out of bed after we'd handed over our church to another couple to run, the Lord said to me, if you're going to do that again, you better be ordained. Now I didn't even know that God knew the word ordained because where I was coming from that wasn't even important. But the Lord said it and I shared it with Sam later on and she does what all wise do and knows exactly what God's saying when he's saying it. And she just looked at me in the eye and said, yes, that's right. <laughs> and so uh, then began a three-year journey of being ordained for ministry in the Baptist Union of Great Britain through Oxford University. So now I'm officially clever <laughs> at last. And 10 years into ordination and my second church in south of London something rather dramatic happened, which I want to share with you a little bit about this morning. But before I do, I just need to give you some emergency instructions. One of the things that have befallen me since the story I will tell you about is something called emotional lability. And you can see that my mouth and my fingers and my left leg and stuff, things are still happening and still recovering from what happened to me but I've lost a little bit of control from in my brain to my emotions. So where you may make a joke and have a little chuckle and move on in conversation, maybe for two seconds you might laugh. For me, it might be 10 seconds or 12 seconds. And that can be a little awkward of people who have never encountered it before. I know it's happening, you will know it's happening, and I will just do a thumbs up. It's okay, do it all right. In that time, you need to look at your phone, check the news, the weather, that kind of Let me just come back to Earth and that'd be fine. Imagine you're on a, uh, a plane and, you know, it's a bit turbulent and you see the air stewardess, and they're walking around and even though it's bumpy, they're still serving drinks and biscuits, so you relax. But when they sit down and buckle up, that's when you've got a problem. So when it happens, because it probably would them because it's fairly emotional, um, just look at Sam. And if she looks relaxed, just chill out. If she doesn't, get praying. That's when you, So that's all the guidance. But let me ask you a question, rhetorically. What is the biggest question facing the UK today? What's the biggest question facing the UK today? I'm sure you can think of many questions. Maybe climate change, maybe the cost of living, maybe transgender rights that's going around, maybe the status of marriage, maybe so many different things. But in the time when Jesus was walking the earth, in his three years of ministry, there was one question which was on everybody's lips and everyone talked about. Is this man, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth, is he the Messiah? And if he is the Messiah, is he the son of God? Is is, is there something more than just being a military figure? Is this man, son, son of David, is he the Messiah? Now the crowd at that time they always heard Jesus start his teaching by saying, my father, my father. You remember those stories that Jesus told and all his teaching always talks about the father all the time. And they knew that he was talking about God, but they couldn't quite conceptualize a human being talking about God as their father. And In the end, Jesus ended up getting crucified for that. But they knew there was something different about his teaching. So the crowd were starting to wonder, who is this, this person? But the Pharisees would always counter and say, well, we know where he's from. The Bible says that nobody will know where the Messiah is from, but we know he was born in Bethlehem, brought up in Nazareth. We know where he's from. So there was a bit of back and forth, a bit of debate, and a bit of confusion, wondering about Jesus. This was the one question. The disciples, they obviously had to grow in their understanding of scripture and faith. And just before this story, in fact, uh, chapter four, there's a wonderful story of Jesus coming in the storm. And in Matthew's um, recital of the story, he actually uses a phrase at the end. He comments on the disciples' reaction to it. And they said, what kind of man is this? What kind of man commands the wind and the waves? Well, let's be honest, no man can do that. But they weren't yet convinced he was the Messiah or the Son of God. So they have these questions in their mind, but they're starting to think, this is a man who's a bit more than a man but we're not yet prepared to say that he he is God. If Jesus is God, what kind of God is he? Maybe you're someone here today who sees himself as spiritual, aware of things happening. You've been chatting with someone who knows the Lord and has a Christian faith, and you wish you had a strong faith like them. And a big question people have in their minds today is, what kind of God is he? And we know the Christian God has come under fire, Quite a lot for being seen as quite harsh, quite angry. And there's been a lot of backtrack in churches today about who he is. And this passage really explains what kind of God he is and who this man is. But up until this point, this man has been marked out in a certain way. Certain things are starting to happen around where they're starting to see he's more than just a man. They one of the Pharisees came to him at night remember the story in the book of John and said we know that God is with you because no one does miracles like you do unless God is with them so they weren't prepared to say you are the Messiah God is in you but they were prepared to say we know God is with you comparing him to the prophets of old so immediately they're starting to elevate him a little bit more and he's getting marked out a bit there are various comments from the crowd at the time when Jesus finished a stretch of teaching in the temple gates every so often they would say, this man teaches with such authority, not like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And for them, they kind of put the Pharisees and the Sadducees on a bit of a pedestal. But they were placing Jesus above that, more than the man, but not quite sure whether he was was God. And also the crowd would say sometimes, see how he does all things well. Wonderful miracles. And the comments, they walk away praising God, And say he does all things well. He was marked out. But in this story we read out for us before, if we look at verse seven, there's one thing that Jesus is absolutely sure. He does not want to be marked out by any proclamation that comes from the evil one, any demon. He does not want a demon to say, to declare, you are the Son of God. That revelation has to come another way, not from the enemy, and we need to be clear about that in our lives. So then we just see this tremendous transformation and miracle in this man. He was a really tough case. He's a kind of case that pastors hope won't turn up at their church on Sunday to expose their lack of faith. This man was just wandering in the hillside, and there's so many demons, they just call themselves legion, meaning like a, a number of uh, a Roman army legion. There's like 30, 40, 50, so many in there that they just call themselves one thing together. And so at the very end of the story, this man, rightly so, his life was so transformed, he says, I want to go with this Jesus. I want to be like the apostles sitting under his teaching. I want to hear about this man and what's happening. he asked Jesus, can I go with you? And one of the very, very rare occasions, Jesus says no. There's about three or four in the Bible. Jesus says no to someone. Jesus said no, but what he really means is yes. But go and tell people how much mercy I've had in you. Go and tell them what I've done for you. And I just want to kind of look at that word much for a minute. How much had God done for this man? Can we kind of conceptualize in our minds and grasp hold of this story that is on a paper, black and white letters, and we, we try and be enthused about it, but let's just have a look at literally what, what is happening. First of all, it's not so clear from the text, but if we understand our Bible history, we'll know. This man was living on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. That was, as Isaiah quoted, the darkness, the dark lands of Isaiah. He was a Gentile. He was not blessed. He had no calling from God. He was rejected and not God's chosen people. There was no reason that this man deserved any such miracle. He had no reason to expect it. If you are a practicing Jew and you're living out the Torah, you may expect it. If you're someone who has faith in God as a God-fearing man, you may expect it. But if you are a Gentile like you and I are in the rest of the world, You had no hope. But Jesus came to this man, and that need not be lost on us. But let's have a look at the transformation that happened in this man. When Jesus gave him that commission to say, go and say how much I've done for you, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And that is a complete transformation because 24 hours before that, he was roaming the countryside. People were scared to go with him he was screaming out and aimless, he was just roaming, but now he's sitting. And that word sitting means something to us now as we can see the contrast between the two situations. And not only was he sitting, but he was clothed. He was so awkward, so uncouth, he was naked. Having been a pastor for 10 years, so many weird people come into your church and do such wonderful things. Do you know, after one song of worship we were singing, we just stopped and someone said, Can you sing Stairway to Heaven? <laughs> totally random. Completely out. Of, where did that come from? And this is how awkward people were, even more so around, around this man. He was clothed now and no longer naked. He was in his right mind and not crying out and cutting himself. As Clive mentioned, he and I together where I, I was with him for six years here doing youth work and starting off as a church birth and there was a youth pastor myself in a high Wycombe of three years and then further in other secular situations and it's a travesty in our society today that young people cut themselves the mental health situation in our country is for want of a better word diabolical it is really tragic and this man had a worst case scenario of it but no longer after he met with Jesus. He was in his right mind and this created a knock on effect because previously people let him do his own thing. People had just been scared to be with him but now they were around him, people were interested. This man was no longer lonely. He'd been lonely for we don't know how many years and he probably got used to it and now People gathering around him trying to look and see, is this the man that used to roam the countryside? What's happened to him? What's he going to say? He was no longer lonely. And lastly, he had a commission from Jesus. He was no longer aimless in his days, just trying to get from morning to night. There are people in our society, when they wake up in the morning, they go, here we go again. And at night, they lay their head down and say, I've made it. I know exactly what it's like and I'll tell you about it in a minute. But this man has such a wonderful transformation and his commission was to go and tell people how much this man, who was marked out by these kinds of miracles, had done for him. But I want to just tell you a little bit about my much, how much God had done for me. I was aged 46, as I say, in pastoring my second church. No ill health whatsoever. I wasn't in the picture of health as you can imagine, but I didn't have ongoing or underlying health conditions. But on the 2nd of November, 2019, in one day, I had four simultaneous strokes. Three in the morning, and then one devastating stroke at about half past five, in A&E. If you're ever gonna have a stroke that's devastating, you wanna have it in A&E. <laughs> yeah. Now you can't plan that, but God can. Amen. Amen. Are you looking at your phone? <laughs> the result of those four strokes, within a 12-hour period, I became the most disabled you can possibly be. I suffered what they call locked-in syndrome. Has anybody ever heard of locked-in syndrome? It's where you are literally locked in your body. And when I say that I was paralysed, I don't just mean my arm didn't move, I mean that my stomach was paralysed, I mean my toes were paralysed, I mean my cheeks were paralysed, I mean my throat was paralysed, my voice box was paralysed, my diaphragm was paralysed. Inside and out, everything. I was so paralysed, all my nerves were paralysed. I was floating. I couldn't feel the bed I was lying on. And I couldn't feel the sheets around my body. I couldn't feel all the pipes that were on me. And I just want to prepare you for that because I want to show you a photograph. Here that I am, minutes from death. And this is the image that confronted Clive when he came to see me in ICU. Perhaps you put the first photograph up. My kids don't like seeing that. It still causes problems. They receive counseling, they're coming through that. and. Um, Sam's had plenty of time to cry, she's a wonderful crier. But when you have something so devastating like this happen, it's not just devastating to me, that's a medical term by the way, the worst stroke you can have is a massive stroke. There's there's little strokes, minor strokes, then there's massive strokes. My one is one I hardly ever use, it's devastating. Because it's not just devastating to my body, it's devastating to the whole family Mm. and extended family. So it's medical and also social. I was on Life Support System. Have you seen, is anyone on TikTok here? Yeah. Anyone seen that lovely song that Elevation Church Singer? Now I've got breath in my body, as a reason to praise God. I still had a reason to praise God without breath in my body. I always having an air pumped into me, and it's because of who God is. That's the real reason. That's the real reason to praise Him. <laughs> Of who he is? Yes. It's a good reason breath is in your body, but the a better reason. The best reason is who he is. I was a day away in that photograph of having a tracheotomy where they put the breath in your body through your neck and they uh, protect you with a balloon they put in your throat because they don't want you to drown of your saliva. Much as they try with that balloon. They can't get all the saliva out of your body because it's generated everywhere in your speech, uh, your speech um, airways, and so they used to have to suck the air, the, sorry, suck the saliva out of my throat. So about eight or nine times a day, four or five times a night, I was gradually drowning for two and a half months and I had to have it sucked out. And the the suck was so powerful and my body so weak with the paralysis that I just shook violently. And it was a horrible sight to see. God's done a lot for me. But after 11 days, I came off life support and was moved to uh, Lewisham Hospital. I was in St. George's for those 11 days. And in those 11 days, as I say, this is the picture that befell Clive when he came in. And my thought was... When I saw Clive, number one, this must be bad. If Clive is here, it's bad. We see each other about once or twice a year, and we have diaries, and we have to arrange it. But he was there within about two days. I thought, this is bad. I know people are telling me it's really bad. I'm getting that vibe because I can't feel a thing. But if he's here, it must be bad. But the other thing hit me, which is very powerful, because when I first woke up, In ICU, I've been told by the paramedics who took me in to the NE, you probably got an infection. They weren't able to diagnose I had three strokes. My heaviness, my slurred speech, didn't give them enough clues because my observation of my breathing and my blood was fine, was 100%. So they said we'll just take you in to be sure. So I was under the impression that I was having just one kind of infection, I would need some antibiotics and all would be right with the world. And the conversation going in the back of the ambulance was, This is a bit excessive, how are you? What's the scores? You're okay, yes, oh, you don't look like one so heard that before. And then I black out. And so I wake up to expect that. But you know when you wake up in the morning and your eyes are closed and the darkness you see is not the darkness of the room, it's the darkness of your own eyelids. It was that moment. God came to me, and I heard his voice. And he said something really powerful, which explained to me what was happening and why it was happening. So if you can imagine opening your eyes, having no human voice telling you what is the matter, and you find yourself floating and paralyzed, that is going to affect your psychology somewhat. It's going to be an issue. But God's voice was so indelible so powerful, so otherworldly, so peaceful that the world can't give that peace. I've got to be honest with you, I was totally relaxed. I was trying to take in the gravity of what happened, and that took quite a few days, but I was relaxed. And so when Clive was standing over, I saw him peering over me um, because I was in and out of sedation, he was just there. I thought, oh, there's someone who will agree with what I've heard. I had this word from God. I knew what was going to happen. I didn't know how it was going to happen. And that's the journey of the book. You'll see that. Sometimes God speaks to us in an indelible way, but we don't know how it works out because we must always be living by faith. That's the only way we can please God. Is that right? Just checking. (laughs) The doctors told Sam some terrible things and they told her that I had a 10 to 20% chance of living, and if the chest infection didn't kill me, then I would probably be living in an institution for the rest of my life, receiving 24/7 round care. And my children were advised to come and see me for one last time, one last time, and I was stated didn't even know it was happening. That's a powerful thing when doctors say you're not going to survive. My family were utterly utterly devastated by this all. And so I had to negotiate the next few months in this condition. If you go into photograph two, I want to show you how I was communicating with the outside world, because obviously my nose was... and my lips, my cheeks, my ears, nothing moved. I could control nothing, apart from my eyelids. And if you want to have a conversation with your eyelids using one of these things called an alphabet board, and you have to do one blink for yes, and two for no, and you want to say, as I did for the very first time when they showed me how to use it, is Lewis Hamilton world champion? Because that's what I wanted to ask. I was so relaxed (laughs) that I'd been watching that on the day before the qualifying, and I knew he would become world champion, and I wanted to find out if he was. Looking back, I feel ashamed. I should have said something like, I love you, this is terrible, I'm still with it. The nurses were a bit confounded by what I said, which took absolutely ages to blink that out, and that's my point. But they went out and they shared it with my family who were waiting next door, and my dad just remarked, that's my David. And on reflection it was the best thing I could have said, because they knew that I had memory, I had emotion, and I wanted to find things that I had desire, and they suddenly realised he's fully cognitive, he is truly locked in. So I spent two months using this as a method. Can I just say, Sam is a whiz at using this. And there was one time when Clive and Jane couldn't, couldn't come and see me quite late on, and Sam had to go and collect our son from school. And Sam left Clive and Jane with the alphabet board and me, like that, <laughs> just blinking away. So we had fun. They were very good. I've got to tell you, you were very good. Jane was, Where's Jane going? She was very good as well. But we had a conversation. And it, it, was, it was really great. You can see the scarlet tracheotomy. It was a wonderful day when that, that came out. There was a second and third visit I had with Clive, it was wonderful for him to be able to see the transformation because the first time was in the ICU, the second time was in a dedicated stroke ward in Lewisham, we were using this, and the third time we didn't need to use this because the tracker was out. I was in a huge cumbersome wheelchair, you know the ones that are really big, and if you see them you say, God don't let pray for that person. <laughs> but it was one of those. I didn't put Clive through that. <laughs> you only pray for those that God tells you. I've done one, but not, no more. Let me just show you photograph number three, if we can move on to the third photograph. This is me learning to walk. It took seven months to learn to walk a few steps. There was a little story that kind of equates me to the man in this, the person in this story. For all his problems and all the difficulties he faced in his condition, he could walk, he could eat, he could swallow, he could feel himself to cut. I couldn't do any of those. And so this journey is seven months to learn to walk again, through all these kind of mechanical aids, until I learned to walk. And I would love to show you a short video of when I started to walk, and I will come to that. But I just want to show you this next photograph. There are over 600 muscles in the human body, and not including the tendons. You haven't got any muscles in your hands, you've got tendons. And this is me trying to strengthen every tendon in my finger. But every single muscle, my diaphragm, my neck, my back, I have to exercise them all. I'm still doing about three or four exercises, uh, three or four hours of exercises per day. And it's only since a year ago that I've been able to stand for this long and talk to you and share God's message of mercy. But the biggest thing that brought me through all this, and this lovely story I want to tell you that I refer to earlier, you get to it. One of the mechanical walking aids that I has had a super name. Up until that point I realised why this was happening and the Lord told me, and I thought, if I can just walk and get to a pulpit and tell people about the mercy of God it will be worth it and you'll never guess what this walking aid was called. A pulpit frame. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I kid you not. And the physiotherapist who knew a vicar, she was an atheist, but she said, she realised the irony and she raised her eyes with a smile and said, it's the pulpit frame, David. It was hilarious. And so every time I practised that by myself around the ward, I was like, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach. And the, the greatest thing was they would leave it. There was an empty bed in front of me in the rehab unit I went to. Uh, I was there for seven months, as I say, after Lewisham. And they left it in the opposite bed because someone had left and it was spaced there. So they, they left it there. And at night, it was calling me like, David, David, you've got to walk? (laughs) As if I lacked for motivation. It was fantastic. In fact, there's a joke in the book. I'm always someone who's a bit um, like an alpha male. Always positive, always thinking how we can do this. And I remember thinking to myself one time, I never take anything lying down. Well, I I was taking this lying down. (laughs) But in my spirit, I wasn't. And it was just wonderful. So let me just show you this video. This is the day that I walked to our hospital. It's great. Let's play the video. Yeah! yeah. Woo! Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. The wheelchair you can see behind me was promptly brought behind me because I can only do about five steps, and the corridors were soaked about like a mile long in this great, archaic Victorian building that I'd lived in for seven months. But it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. And I started dreaming about that moment about two months before because I thought, this is going to work. I'm going to be able to walk. So it was fantastic. Now, the book that I'd like to leave with you and is on sale is called Don't Get Excited But. That's my story. And this is the much. This is how much God did for me. And that's why I want to leave with you. I don't want to talk so much about me and what's happened in my recovery and how it happened. I more want to talk about the mercy. But if you want this book, it's for sale cheaper here in the foyer. Sam's got one of those whiz-bang machines that you can tap your card or tap your phone or whatever. And if you're watching online, you can buy it on uh, faithbuilderspublishing.co.k forward slash shop. You can do that, or you can find it on Amazon. If you read a Kindle, who reads a Kindle here? No one, great. Oh, one does, yeah. <laughs> you can look at it there as well. Um, but that explains so many things. It explains the ICU experience of how you deal with becoming disabled so quickly. If you know someone who's going through that situation or living with disability, and the psychological process of that is explained in the book as well. It has a whole chapter on things I said when I was locked in and how bizarre they were. So on Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m., I would just say scores to my brother, who's taking photographs here today, my dad or my, my older brother, and it, we got down to the place where i just say, uh, just communicate and blink, SC, and they wouldn't know the football scores, and they'd say, are you saying scores? And that was it, they just told me the scores all the time. There was one night with hilarious. I wanted to find out a European football score, and uh, I knew that, I think it was Manchester United playing Bayern Munich, And because Bayern Munich was shorter than Manchester United by a few letters, and Sam doesn't like football, I tried to communicate Bayern Munich, but then I realised, oh no, that that doesn't sound like it's it's spoken, so I've got to make in my mind, phonetically, how it sounds by blinking. It was really confusing, but we did it. (laughs) We got there, and I found out the European scores. So there's things, and I also caught Covid in the first wave, that was tragic actually, you know it sounds awkward, But that point, I just couldn't accept it. I thought, "Why would God do all these wonderful things and then not let me show?" I just don't believe it. So I wasn't worried about it. I still had the thoughts. It was when all the prime minister updates were saying how serious it was, and I did have a few thoughts: "Am I going to be alive tomorrow? Is it going to come back and bite me?" And I saw the virus once in the in the bottom of my lungs. I did a check, and it was just amazing to see that small little thing had taken over, affected the economies of the world. Sam's also written a chapter because the stuff that the family goes through and the stuff that Sam went through, and you may have friends who are going through very difficult things and it's affecting you, and you want to be in a position of faith. Sam's journey to faith was very difficult. So often we're confronted with really difficult circumstances, and we, we say to ourselves, I should be in faith, but we're not. And the reason is God is always growing us, and He always puts bigger things. Okay, mine's fairly unique, I get that. <laughs> But Sam had a journey to faith, and she had a word from God that sustained her throughout. And obviously, that, that came true as well, so you can read about that too. I should say that a quarter of the rehab facility, the people that were there, they died in the first wave of COVID. Um, that's not the only people that died around me. I saw a number of people die, which is very, brings it home to you. So, yes, if you want to have a look at that, that's great. Now, also speak there quite candidly about how. I dealt with suicidal thoughts. Because even though God said what he said, sometimes loneliness hits you and there is a spiritual dynamic that is going on. Jesus on the cross said, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Now there can be arguments as to whether that Psalm 22 and his quoting scripture. But no one quotes scripture for fun when they're in pain and dying out with blood. There was something more visceral, something more real going on there. And i just share a little bit about that in the story. So if you want to buy a copy, you can go to the back after the service. The second thing that Jesus said to this person in the Bible was he said, tell them how much God has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. That's an important phrase, how. Because this person in the story and myself had the same thing Heard the word of the Lord, and that was God's mercy. He was delivered, I was healed. The mercy of God can look like very different expressions, but it's still the mercy. It can come to us in different ways, but it's still the powerful, life changing mercy of God. And I love to pray with people after the service for that some ministry time. And if you feel that God is speaking to you today and uh, waking you up to things that you've accepted in your life, and then you realize. God's mercy can break in and take that away. And the mercy that follows me all the days of my life, I can rely on. That's for now. That scripture is one of the most misused in modern songs today. They've used the word God's mercy is chasing after me as if God is chasing us down because he loves us so much. Nothing further from the truth. Yes, that is the correct way you use a Hebrew word, but that's not the context of Psalm 23. The context is security and safety, yes. like insurance. God is there to catch you. He's ready with his mercy at any time for what you're inevitably going through because you live on the earth around, surrounded by sinners, running in sinful ways. So you're going to have to, Jesus says, you're going to have trouble. Just thought I'd cheer you up with that. You're going to have to, but I will cheer you up with the fact that God's mercy is going to follow you all the days of your life. And everybody said, that's right. The thing this shows is you think about the situation I was in and this man was in. Who had the initiative? Who had the initiative? Jesus. That man didn't ask to be set free. That person didn't ask that. The demons brought him to that, to Jesus. I didn't ask for any healing or miracle of any thought. It shows that Jesus has a merciful disposition. Turn to the person next to you and say, merciful disposition. And what that means is it's not always dependent on whether you cry out for mercy. Because even before you might cry out for mercy, there are plenty of stories where you do, but there are times when you don't you're in such a bad way that you can't cry for mercy. Okay, it may not be literal like it was for me and this person in the Bible, but we all face struggles that leave us speechless. My daughter's testimony that she's preached in her church is that she couldn't pray for me. She couldn't find the words. She sobbed and sobbed and groaned and groaned. She groaned out her prayer to God she couldn't find the words to say it. But because of Jesus' merciful disposition, there was healing. Yes. So before you even ask, if you're that desperate that you're just winded, you're bowed down, you're overbreaked for it, you're just just completely laid low by it. Sometimes you can't even get out of bed. It's not because you lack faith. It is because the situation is just overcoming you. And Jesus is going to show you how he is the overcomer that lives oh, in you. There's a super hymn we sing by one of the saints of old, uh, John or Charles Wesley. And unfortunately, it's the only bit that is unscriptural in on one of his songs. Make us more than conquerors. No, he's done it. <laughs> That's right. We are. But he is the one who has made us more than conquerors. And so we're all going to face situations in our life that are impossible. You're all going to find yourself in areas where you're out of your depth. You've been preaching, teaching about Ephesians and learning what it means to get over some of our awkwardness in sharing our faith. And now we want to get over self-preservation. And those situations come to us so that God can reveal himself to again. The whole of the world is set up for God to reveal who he is. Yes. Yes. But the the reason we are made, the reason the earth exists, the reason there's blades of grass, the reason there's sky, the reason there's money, all those things is for God to show himself. If he didn't, we should convict him of a cosmic crime for not showing who he is. If you know something about the crime and the police tell you, ask you, do you know something about this and you say no, and they find out you said no when you do, you can go to prison for that. And God should be in a cosmic prison if he didn't set the world up the way it is. And so if you ever don't understand why something's happening in your life, the answer is that God is revealing himself. Now I don't know how he's revealing himself to you, I don't know what he's revealing himself to you, and you may not know it, but you must tell yourself the scriptural answer that God is somehow showing himself to me. It is not true that we can never fully know what God's doing in our life it's utter rubbish. We do know he is revealing his glory and he did this to this person and he wanted this person to go and tell them how he did it and it was because of his merciful disposition. Now this revelation of mercy didn't come to me through the strokes. And through my survival-locked-in syndrome, it came about three or four years before when I was pastoring my first church. And I come to a place of utter defeat. Everything I tried hadn't worked. I could not get the church to grow. We planted churches, done of courses, other churches, other situations, and seen fruit. But there were a number of situations I found that occurred in my life, um, which I share in this book called The Majestic Mean of Mercy, which... Our late Pastor Collins recommended on the back with a number of other uh, international leaders and preachers. And at that point, it was about 5am in the morning, and I just said to God, not as a threat, I said, I simply can't go on. The alpha male me, who said all things are possible, had come to the point after about 20 years where nothing was possible. I could not get this downtrodden, very small church to grow. And I said to God, I am going to have to come out of ministry and give up. It wasn't a threat. I just was winded. I was just, and this has been building for years and years and years. And some of our suffering can be over years and years and years. And the reason is because the human spirit is so strong. God has to break it down so we, yes. not so that we are ready for his revelation of mercy, not so that we're worthy or we deserve it but so that we can receive it when it comes. Yes, yes, that's really important, so we can receive it when it comes. This person in the story is ready, I was ready. And something bubbled up in me that morning at 5 a.m. and I was praying and I just said, Lord, give me a break, have mercy on me. And I suddenly had one of those, it wasn't a literal out-of-body experience, but it felt like that. I felt like I was looking back at myself and I looked at myself and I thought, that's a prayer that you have never prayed in your life. And suddenly, before my eyes, all these stories in the Bible about Jesus praying for people and miraculous things happening were because people cried out for mercy. I felt so ashamed in a wonderful way in God's presence because I knew he was forgive me at the same time. And I kid you not, I literally kid you not, from that day to about six months hence, our church grew by a third. I did nothing. We just carried on doing what we are doing. I was so enjoying God's mercy, my quiet time and what it was showing me, and enjoying seeing the church grow. I stopped asking for mercy because I was so happy. Now I am, every day, trust me, every day. (laughs) Somebody phoned me up from the other side of town and said, I'd like to get baptized. Is that all right? I don't know why I found your church, but it was in the phone book and I'm coming over. Can we have a chat? She was a backslidden Christian from, from Scotland. Somebody else came to me and said, I'm not welcome at any church in the town. I committed adultery with my spouse a number of years back. I know it's wrong. I've repented and got right with the Lord. And I will come back to church. But no church will have me when I tell them my story. I said, you can come. There was a, a house church that just closed down around the corner from us. And they all turned up one Sunday. It's incredible. I was preaching a sermon, nothing special. The back door opened and eight, nine people just walked in. They were still coming in the back when they were finding their seats. And I'm trying to keep my head on what is happening and I'm just exploding inside with joy, just thinking, more mercy, more mercy. This is so good. As I say, our church grew up by over a third. One lady who was in leadership said to me, this church is no longer, I don't feel this church is my own. There's more people that I don't know than I do know. And I was like, hallelujah, that's how it should be. She didn't see it that way. (laughs) So there's lots and lots of stories about how God filtered his mercy into my life and changed my mindset rounds, and you can have a look at that. But there is something I must tell you about that which really brings home the ministry that God has now given me. This book was edited, and I got Collins and others' recommendations in two weeks before my strokes. I just asked Sam's sister, who's a magazine designer, she designed the front cover, but I just didn't have time to get to publish it beforehand. And when I was in ICU, and God told me to leave the church, I was at, that was the second thing He said to me. It suddenly all made sense. My whole life just fitted in. I realised why I've been frustrated for so long, why I've been suffering, I had difficult times, struggled with mental health issues, and realised it's because God wanted me to experience mercy and to literally be the living embodiment of His mercy. <laughs> I'd always longed to do the miracles of Jesus and seen a few. I had no idea that I was going to be one. <laughs> Mercy is, in my summary of this book, a just God meeting an offender's need. So it may be that we need salvation and our sinful life has offended God. It may be that we need healing. It may be, like this person in the story, we need deliverance. But the whole point of the book is to contrast the wrath of God. I bet you didn't expect me to say that. To contrast the wrath of God with the mercy of God. I want to tell you, the mercy of God means nothing if you don't explain the wrath of God. And in the last 30, 40 years, that is the biggest thing the church has had a problem with. And when we talk about self-preservation and sharing our testimonies and our stories, if we don't speak about the wrath of God, We are not sharing the Gospel. What has Jesus saved us from? I was doing some school's work once in High Wycombe, really excited to be there, and I just said to a girl in the corridor, oh, the Lord wants to transform your life forever. You'll never be the same. And she asked me back, I think my life's all right. I was speechless. But as I've chewed that over over the years, I've realized she had no concept of her need of God. And so before we tell people about the second Adam who wants to save them, we've got to tell them about the first Adam who messed everything up. Yeah. Jesus says, after that wonderful gospel verse, John 3:16, they will not perish but have eternal life. And we love that and we see it in the Olympics. But Jesus does mention perish. That's they will perish. And in verse 17, he then speaks about those who do not believe in him will be condemned. Yeah. And then I think it's verse 18, he says, they will remain with the wrath of God on them. Not they're sitting on a fence and they have time to decide which way they're going to believe in me or not because they're neutral, as everyone thinks they are. I listened to a Radio 5 uh, program once where the premise of the whole hour-long show was aren't human beings basically good? And it was a massive pat on the back for human beings. But we know from the scriptural story that human beings are completely ridden with sin. You've only got to look at Ephesians chapter 2 and the book you're studying right this month, the Gospel of Mercy, explained in Ephesians 2, chapters 1 to 5, of how sinful we were, how by nature we were creatures of God's wrath, how we we're following our own desires, how we we're being led into sin. And then it says, But God in Christ, who's rich in mercy, yeah. we're not saved by mercy, we're saved by grace, but we're saved because. Of the mercy. Colin writes on the back here that it's the, mercy is a gateway to grace. I always use the phrase the foundation. The foundation to our Christian life is mercy. Everything happens because of that mercy, and we live on that mercy. So if you want to get your head around the wrath of God and know how to explain it sensibly, so you don't come across as a weirdo and you're not condemning everybody, you speak about God's mercy in the light of God's wrath. But when they hear the mercy, then it means something. Then it has traction, tell me more they say. And so they can understand this merciful disposition. So I've told you, this man Jesus was marked out by how much mercy he had on this man. And that's the message for today. The man is marked by much mercy. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, the man is marked out by much mercy. Because it was three chapters later from that story where Peter was able to say, when Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? He said, you're the Christ. And he could say that because he'd seen the mercy. No man had mercy. (laughs) No man has mercy like him. (laughs) It's only God-like. It must be God. That much mercy must be God. And it's important that people who are seeking God, who are interested in spiritual things, the big question they have faced, because there's so many gods in this day and age that aren't real gods, but they think they're gods, is to know what kind of God we believe in. Mercy is not a word you hear much nowadays, but as we explain that facet of God's love for us, that makes a difference. You say God loves you, they'll think you're strange because love means so many things in our society today. But if you say God wants to have mercy on you, they're like, well, what is mercy in the first place? And then you're in and you can share how much he wants to save us from without coming across as a complete lunatic. So when we go back to that big question that I asked you at the beginning, what is the big question facing society? And there was one that faced that society. Peter had it answered when Jesus said, who do you say I am? He could say, the man is marked by much mercy. You're the Messiah. God is in you. But just before I close, and we have a time of ministry, because I believe that God is speaking to you as I'm speaking, stirring you up and realising that he wants to work in your life powerfully by his mercy. There's a prophetic message that the Lord has opened my eyes to. Turn with me to, uh, in Mark, in the story, but to verse 20. I really want you to read it yourself. I'd love it if you wouldn't just sit there and listen to it, but you look at it on your phone, and I want you to see the words. Verse, verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. So this man lived on the west side of the, River Geo- uh, the Sea of Galilee, in the ten towns of Decapolis, means ten towns, and that was his area. So he had ten towns to go to, and explain how much mercy God had, had in him. But if you jump forward, just a few pages to Mark chapter seven, and verse thirty-one, have a look at this. It's going to blow your way. Mark seven thirty-one. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee (laughs) and into the region of? Say it louder. The Decapolis. What had he done? Jesus had sent his emissary to speak to these people about his mercy because Jesus knew he was going to be there in two chapters time, whatever length of time it is. And it's because of that the people were ready. Their hearts were ready for the mercy. And we see a wonderful story of a miracle of a deaf mute being heard and many other people turn their life over to God. And I believe that what God has done in my body is a representation of what He's going to do in His body, in the church. Bring it back from the dead. (laughs) And He wants me and you to share our testimony the mercy of God so they're ready to receive it when he comes and I believe he's coming this morning, I believe when I go to other churches I have about twice a month sharing this message of mercy to others that God is coming and he's going to come and the reason he's going to bring revival to this country is not because we pray for it it's not because we believe for it, they're all parts of it, but they're God generated things, you only believe because he's put the faith in you You only pray because the Holy Spirit is showing you what to pray but it's His merciful disposition that He's coming. (laughs) God is coming in revival power because He is coming. He is doing it. (laughs) Praise God. The man is marked by much mercy. (laughs) If I could ask Toby and the band to come up and just begin to play not because I want to create an atmosphere, but because I want to take your minds off for your lunch and onto Jesus <laughs> because he wants to move. And maybe the prayer team will come forward and be available. Clive, Sam will help me down and we'll pray as well. If you're on the freedom prayer team, can you come forward? God has stirred you throughout this story not by how amazing my testimony is or how wonderful their story is in the Bible, but by the power of his mercy. And as Clive spoke to me and ICU you and prayed for me, and I sense inside he, he agrees with what God has said to me, we as a team want to pray for you, that what God is saying to you, we would agree with you. There's power in agreement. Amen? There's power in that. You know what God has said to you. And as my book says, it's hard to go with that all the way through and see that through. And I'm still working through things now. But God wants to come. And I know that my message is powerful for those who are severely disabled. You come. We're not scared to pray for you. We'll pray as long as it takes. And you should keep going for prayer every day because that mercy is following you every day. Don't be disheartened if an amazing miracle doesn't happen straight away. I've seen it happen, it does happen, but if it doesn't, he's still following you. Isn't that great news? So just as we begin to worship, just make your way forward. If you feel that you want to know this God who is merciful, come forward. If someone pray for you, if you're embarrassed, go to the person who brought you this morning and they will pray with you in your chair and tell you. But if you're sick and you struggle with that, In your mind, you're struggling with thoughts that you feel you shouldn't be struggling with. Come forward and the team will pray with you and we're going to agree with you. If you've been struggling with the evil one, with things, temptation, come forward and we'll pray with you and agree with you. God's mercy is here. Let's begin to worship God. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you.